The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to John. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. As we remain standing, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your Son, the sign of your love. Thank you that you sent him to redeem us, to rescue us from our brokenness, our fallenness, to restore us to a right relationship with you. Would you remind us of this good news of redemption this morning, and would you lead us to put our hope in him? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Earlier this week, uh, I typed the phrase self-help books into the search bar at Amazon. And within a fraction of a second, I learned that 70,000 titles were available for for immediate delivery to my doorstep. This little exercise told me three things. The first is that we human beings have a deep desire to improve ourselves. We want to be better than we are. The second is that this desire for improvement must come from an equally deep sense that something is wrong with us, or at least not quite right. The third is that we aren't doing a very good job of improving ourselves if there are 70,000 books on the topic and everyone is still unhappy. We are unhappy, we don't know why, and we haven't the foggiest idea how to fix it. I think that about sums up the state of Western culture. We live in the wealthiest, healthiest society that the world has ever known, and yet rates of anxiety and depression are spiraling out of control. Deaths of despair through suicide, overdose, and addiction are on the rise. 
We have it all, but what do we have? Full recycling bins and empty hearts. Why is this? It's because we don't know how to be human. It's hard to improve something if you don't know what it was meant for in the first place. It's hard to make a self better if you don't know what a self is. Today we come to part three of a four-part sermon series entitled How to Be a Human Being. My goal in this series is to help us see from the pages of Scripture what it means to be human and therefore how to live the lives that we've been given. Each week we're walking through a different act in the story of the Bible. Act one told the story of creation. Act two, the fall of humanity. Today in act three, we will consider the gift of redemption. And next week, we will look ahead to the promise of a new creation in act four. We learned in act one that human beings are glorious creatures. We are dependent on God who made us to be in relationship with him. We've been made for one another, and we've been given the task of stewarding the good things of this world as bearers of God's image. We saw in Act 2, however, that we have fallen from our original state of grace. In our thirst for independence, we rejected God, and we became enslaved to sin. We are broken, and we're wounded as a result, living in exile with a constant longing for home. Now, this puts us in an impossible position. Because of our actions and because of the disposition of our hearts, we cannot be the creatures that we were made to be. Self-improvement will never satisfy. You can dress up, buy nice things, work out, and eat well, but those things, they will never bring you home. At best, they will only distract you from the grief of living in exile. But what if there is a way to recover our humanity? What if God never gave up on us, though we gave up on him? What if he came after us, followed us out the garden gates into exile, and opened a door not to self-improvement, but to complete and utter transformation? What if he came to rescue us? Well, that's the story that I want to tell this morning, and I want to try and tell it through the lens of a single incident in the life of Jesus. See, between Genesis 3, our text last week, and John 3, our text this morning, thousands of years of history have unfolded. I can't recount the story of redemption that takes place throughout those millennia, but one thing I want you to know, Throughout the story of the Bible, from the fall of Adam and Eve to the birth of Jesus Christ, God pursues his people. God pursues his people. It began in Genesis 3 when, knowing that Adam and Eve had eaten the forbidden fruit, God came and he called to them in the garden saying, where are you? The story of our redemption is the story of God's relentless and loving pursuit and it comes to a climax in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, to which we turn this morning in the story of Nicodemus. You can find it on page 887 in those red Bibles, John chapter 3. Nicodemus was a teacher of the Jewish law. He was a Pharisee, a member of the spiritual elite. He was supposed to know everything there was to know about God, and yet he was confused by Jesus. 
One evening, under cover of darkness for fear of what others might think if they saw him, Nicodemus went to find Jesus and to question him. Rabbi, he said, we know that you're a teacher from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Nicodemus is respectful. He calls Jesus rabbi and teacher. He wants to know about these miracles that he's seen Jesus doing. It seems, it seems like he might want a little advice as well. There must be some technique Jesus is using to access the power of God's kingdom. There must be some secret teaching. Nicodemus wants to know more. Well, Jesus has other ideas. Truly, truly, I say to you, he says, interrupting Nicodemus, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus is saying to him, you think you know what you're seeing, but you're actually blind. There is only one way to find your way to the kingdom of God, and that is by starting life all over again. Now, the darkness in which these two men have been standing, it's now a metaphor for Nicodemus's condition, which is one of complete spiritual blindness. Darkness imagery occurs throughout John's gospel as a way of describing our spiritual condition, and it's a potent metaphor. Unless someone heals us of our spiritual blindness, we simply cannot see Jesus, the world, the kingdom of God, or ourselves as we truly are. Nicodemus doesn't get it. So he responds to Jesus with a question, and though he's probably legitimately confused by Jesus' talk of being born again, I think he's being playful by pretending to take him literally. How can a man be born when he's old? He asks. Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Well, Jesus replies to this coy question with what can only be described as a rabbinic smackdown. He says to Nicodemus, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Jesus contrasts natural birth with supernatural birth and makes it clear that what Nicodemus needs is the latter. He needs to be born again or born from above, as the phrase can also be translated. But this birth can only come about by the power of God's Spirit. As a means of explaining this, Jesus uses the language of an Old Testament prophecy that Nicodemus would have known very well. When the people of Israel lived in exile in Babylon, God made them a promise through the prophet Ezekiel. It was a promise about a future homecoming, but a more dramatic and profound homecoming than they were even capable of imagining. So this is what God says in Ezekiel 36 to his people. He says, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey all my rules. The people of Israel 
thought that their problem was the fact that they were in exile. God's promise revealed much deeper issues. They were in exile to be sure, but they were also broken and they were sinful. They couldn't merely go home with the expectation that all would be well. They had been exiled for a reason. They needed to be forgiven of their sins, restored to a right relationship with God, and given new hearts capable of following him. Only then could they truly come home. When Jesus spoke to Nicodemus of being born anew by water and spirit, this is what he meant. The water is the water of cleansing, signifying the forgiveness of sins. The spirit is the presence of God, signifying a restored relationship with God, and with that, the promise of healing. Last week, you may remember, we talked about the fall of humanity and the fact that we are sinful, broken creatures. We are sinful insofar as we live in rebellion against the God who made us. And we're broken insofar as we suffer the consequences of living in a world that has been cursed by God as a result of our sin. We need to be forgiven of our sins and healed of our brokenness. We also need new hearts that aren't petrified by rebellion. Well, in his loaded reply to Nicodemus, Jesus is basically saying this. You think you're here to learn a thing or two. You're actually here to receive the promise of Ezekiel of complete and utter transformation through the forgiveness of your sins, the renewal of your heart, and the gift of the spirit of the living God. If you truly want what you see in me, this is what you need. Well, it's no wonder that Nicodemus' next words are, how can these things be? Well, Jesus explains, once again, drawing on the Old Testament that Nicodemus knew so well. He says in verse 13, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now, we don't have time to step back into the book of Numbers to review every detail of the scene that Jesus refers to, but here it is in brief. The people of Israel had disobeyed God and been set upon by a plague of poisonous serpents. In order to save them, God tells Moses to cast a serpent out of bronze and place it on a pole so that anyone who's bitten by a snake can look at it and be healed. It's one of those bizarre moments from the history of Israel that Jesus refers to as a way of revealing something about himself. Amidst the poison of sin and rebellion, Jesus has come to save us by being lifted up and looked upon. He's referring to the cross, the cross on which he will quite literally be lifted up and brutally murdered. And he's inviting Nicodemus to look to his death as the means of his salvation and new birth. Well, at this point, Nicodemus just kind of fades from the scene. He doesn't speak again. It's not clear if Jesus is still talking at verse 16 or if this is now John commenting on what Jesus has said. What is clear is that these words are no longer just for Nicodemus. They're for all of us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. 
For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. For God so loved the world. From the very beginning, God was motivated by love. He made this world and he made us as a crowning achievement of creation in an act of extravagant and unrestricted love. We are not a science experiment, nor are we a sociological project. We are the beloved children of God. So loved that he sent his eternal son through whom he created all things to die for us in order that we might be redeemed. Jesus didn't come to condemn. We've already condemned ourselves by choosing independence from God. We've already chosen death instead of life. Jesus came to rescue us by being lifted up on the cross, suffering condemnation on our behalf, and and enduring death in our place so that he might rise to new life and beckon us to join him, forgiven and restored. Here's how Paul puts it in our reading from Colossians 1. He says, And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. We want to know how we can help ourselves. And Jesus says, believe in me. We want to do something. Jesus says, only I can help you. Five times in four verses, we are invited to believe We want to do so much more, but we're invited to believe, to believe that Jesus is the Son of God and to believe that true life comes by trusting in his sacrifice for sin on the cross. That's that's how to be a human being. And this is the only way that we can recover our lost humanity. We search Amazon for self-help books and we get 70,000 hits when what we need is completely beyond our ability to help ourselves. When we search honestly for what we truly need, forgiveness, healing, restoration, new hearts, there's only one result, and it's Jesus. We come to Jesus like Nicodemus, looking for a teaching or a method for how to be human. Jesus offers us new birth instead. We want a technique. Jesus says we need to start over, to be born again, to new life in him and through him. We cannot simply improve ourselves or get an upgrade. Our sin must be dealt with and new life received as a gift. Self-help is no help at all. We need to be rescued by grace. Now Nicodemus, he was probably insulted by his first encounter with Jesus. He was a leader of Israel after all. To be told that he was blind, that he needed to be cleansed from sin, healed from brokenness, and restored to a right relationship with God, well, it must have seemed a bit much to him. And then to be told that Jesus was the key to all of this, Well, that was definitely too much. But you know, Nicodemus couldn't let it go. He stuck around. 
And though we don't know when he acknowledged his blindness and received his sight, we know that he did. In John 19, with Jesus dead and resting in a borrowed tomb, Nicodemus turned up with the spices for his burial. And John tells us this in the briefest of asides. He says, Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. He had come to Jesus by night, blind to his own blindness, but he finally saw the light as Jesus was lifted up on the cross to bear the sins of the world. Do you remember what you were made for back in Act 1? You were made to be dependent on God, to be sustained in this life through a personal relationship with Him. You were, you were made to bear His glory, to steward this world, to love others well. But you rebelled. We all rebelled. We declared our independence and the glory faded, the world broke, and we wandered into exile. How do we recover our lost humanity? Through Jesus. By looking to his death and resurrection for our salvation, by turning our backs on independence, by turning our backs on our rejection of God, by seeking forgiveness of our sins. But you know, this doesn't simply amount to a do-over where we try our best a second time to get things right. This new life he gives us through the Holy Spirit is eternal. And in this new life, we are drawn forward in hope to an entirely new creation. We'll talk about this hope and the glory of that new creation when we come to Act 4 and the story of Scripture next week. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the gift of our redemption. That you have rescued us by grace, by bearing our sin and shame on the cross, by burying them in the grave, rising to new life, and inviting us into your new life through faith. Give us eyes to see the light of your salvation that we might re be redeemed and restored to our humanity, that we might live in hope and in longing for this new creation. We pray these things, Lord Jesus, in your name and for your glory. Amen.